Some of you are thinking, hey, wait a minute, that's what you spoke about last Sunday. So let me just tell you why I'm speaking about marriage, because some of us haven't got it yet. We just didn't, we just didn't understand enough yet. And I include myself in there. So, well, today I'm going to ask the question, who is, maybe you're not married. So let me ask the question to the people who are yet to be, possibly yet to be married. Who's going to be in control in your marriage? You or your spouse? Well, if it's either of those two options, you're not ready yet. It's got to be God who's in control. And I want to speak a bit about that this morning. And I should have titled my message, Stop Being Childish. Because during this message, I'm going to speak about some of the things that we do in our relationships with one another. And this extends beyond marriage, even in how we deal with our friends or with our colleagues or people around us. There are times where we fall back to childish ways and the Word of God actually calls us forward to grow up to maturity in ways where we can experience a much richer and much fuller relationship than the default that people settle for. So the title would really be Stop Being Childish and I guess it will make sense a bit later on. I'm going to pray and then start really getting into this. Heavenly Father, as we gathered to hear your word, I ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit and through your word. Teach us your ways, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I spoke about marriage as something that God instituted for mankind. He gave it to human beings. It was put into place right at the beginning in creation. It's part of the way God intends human beings to fulfill his Genesis chapter 1 mandate where he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. And this idea that God gave us stewardship over creation and actually expects man to represent him in the world and to rule, I mean man and woman, mankind, that's for the glory of God. And so marriage is a holy institution and should be honored by all, whether you're married or single, young or old. Marriage is a sacred thing that you should honor, you should hold it in high regard. And that was stated without ambiguity in Hebrews 13 verse 4. It simply says, marriage should be honored by all. And that's not something that we really should be debating about, but in the world people debate about those ideas. For a believer, the Word of God settles that. Marriage is not uniquely Christian. I want to explain this for a moment because sometimes people think of marriage as something that belongs to the church or belongs to Christianity, but it doesn't. Marriage is an institution from God for humankind and we implicitly and without thinking or wrestling over this, we recognize that. For example, if someone got married and he wasn't a believer, the, the husband and the wife wasn't a believer, maybe they were followers of another religion, perhaps they were Hindus, and they went through some Hindu marriage ceremony, and then they were married, and then they made a family and started to worship many gods, and one day God meets them and they get saved, they come to know Jesus and they become Christians. Nowhere do we go and say, you need to get married now. We understood they're married because we understood even though they did none of the vows we do possibly or half of the things we say and no recognition of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're still married. Yeah. See, the church doesn't have ownership of marriage. Marriage is an institution from God. And that's why it's so important for us to understand it well because it's not something that we're just being 
kind of indoctrinated in through Christianity. It's basic, basic stuff God has given to mankind for the flourishing of humanity. And so it's in fact a blessing from God to provide the right framework and foundation for healthy families, which lead to a healthy society. And this is by God's design and for His glory. So when we're talking about marriage, what we think about is relevant to everyone on earth. And when it comes to marriage, sadly, it's estimated that roughly 50% of marriages end in divorce. This is not just in the case of the West, it's in the case of arranged marriages and marriages by choice for love. It's in the case of Western or, you know, whatever Eastern marriages, many of them fail. Not, not all necessarily end in divorce, some end in abandonment or just a silent death internally, still married but not married. The, rea the reality is... Um, Okay, it's unusual that this stops when that stops, but in a minute the generator will be on. I'm going to carry on. The reality is when you look at marriage, you can think that's a gamble. It's a 50-50 chance it's going to work out. And some people in the world think like that now and they say, we don't want to get married because it's likely to fail. And maybe it's just as likely to succeed, but actually... If we understood the Word of God and we started to build according to His ways, we could change those odds dramatically. Yeah. It would be possible to get far, far greater likelihood of a healthy marriage if you learn about marriage from God's Word. Yeah. So I, I want us to go further and look at some of the roots of the, of the trouble we have. And I want us to start with, I'm going to start with a verse in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. And it's a strange verse. This verse is where Samuel confronts Saul. And uh, I'll read the verse to you and then I'll explain what's taking place. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, it says, Rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Samuel speaks to Saul and he says, um, you had instructions from God, you had authority from God, you did your own thing. And now this rebellion is the same as witchcraft. This rebellion is as the sin of divination. And because you rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. It's a dramatic moment in Saul's life where his authority to be king of Israel is being taken away from him because he chose to do his own thing, not to do what God had given him to do. And it was, a, it was an exercise of control where he tried to take control of what God had told him he should be doing. So he said, instead of doing it God's way, I'm going to do it my way and that question of who's in control is really where the idea of witchcraft comes from this is fine no that is healthy oh, okay, sorry. One, two. you could have done that quite a while ago hopefully 
<laughs> I don't know what magic that was, but uh, now the demon's gone. Um, so when we look at that Saul account, we have to ask what went wrong and why is it being likened to witchcraft? You thought I was talking about marriage, but I'm trying to explain to you how many marriages end up in demonic dynamics. That's really how serious this is. Your marriage can end up with demonic dynamics in the marriage if you don't understand how God works. It's about who is in control. See, God was in authority and Saul was to serve him. But Saul wanted to be in control and Saul fit to do things his way. And so attempting to exercise control without being under God's authority is the root dynamic of witchcraft. And beneath that sits a rebellious idolatry that says, I'm going to be in control because if I know the future, I can control the future. That's what sorcery, witchcraft and divination is about. It's finding out what will happen next so you can have control. It's not for us to know. That's why God doesn't always do it except through prophecy. But magic, witchcraft, it's actually a without God, I will control something. Circumstances, the future, people around me. Why do people go to the fortune teller? Ah, I want to know the future. Why do they go to that other medicine man? So he can give me a spell or a potion so that I can make that guy fall in love with me. It's witchcraft. You see, you're trying to control someone else where you're trying to control something illegitimately without God's authority. In other words, by bypassing God, you put yourself in control and you say, I'm going to organize this. So that's, let me say it again, attempting to exercise control without being under God's authority is the root dynamic of witchcraft. And beneath that is a rebellious idolatry that says, I'm going to be boss of my own world. So then let's go back to the fall. This is when Adam and Eve sinned because it's really there that all the problems began. And don't worry, this is not generic and this is not oversimplified. This is going to make a lot of sense. In Genesis 3 verse 16, after Adam and Eve have sinned, we read this. It says, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So I don't know how women gave birth before that. Maybe they never had. I mean, I mean that's quite evident from the timeline of the story. So we don't really know what childbirth might have been like in a sinless, perfect context. But childbearing is pretty painful. So, fact, that happened. But then we get this interesting part of the verse. It says in Genesis 3 verse 16, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now if we had the scripture up there, I anticipated we would have the ESV translation and the ESV translates this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The funny thing is, I'd read that verse many times in other translations, and most of them said your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Not your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. Well, what happened with the ESV? I would say that the um, nervous complementarians uh, that revised and changed the translation of the ESV were trying too hard. 
So what do I mean by that? A complementarian is somebody who, within the Christian view of marriage, views husband and wife as carrying different roles and different positions within the marriage. So you are complementary. You, com you complement, with, not with an I, with an E, so you work together. So it's, this person is a complement, but not the same as that person. You have different roles and different responsibilities and different positions within marriage. That's the complementarian view. And what they were nervous about in that text, in the, in the uh, modern ESV, that they changed it to, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, is that they wanted to steer away from any idea that that verse could have been about some kind of a mutual attraction or sexual desire. So rather than your desire will be for your husband, and us thinking she wants him, like my wife wants my body, you know? It's not that. That's not what this was about. It was not your desire will be for him, like you want him, I just want you, no, no. It's contrary because there's actually some other dynamic that has to do with who's in control. And so the ESV translators actually tried to push for preserving the meaning that the verse should have, but I think they didn't need to. Anyway, let's read that verse and we'll see that it's clear from that verse that it's about control dynamics. To the woman he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And in fact, only a few verses later, a chapter later in the Bible, we get a very similar construction in Genesis 4 verse 7. In Genesis 4 verse 7, the writer is speaking about Cain and Cain's temptation to Cain killing Abel. And in Genesis 4 verse 7 we read, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So there's a very similar construction. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And what we read in Genesis 3 verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What we see here is quite clear. In Genesis 4 verse 7, it's even easier to understand what's going on. Sin wants to have Cain, which we know means have control over him. Sin wants to have control over him, but he is supposed to have self-control. He must rule over sin in his life. So that's what the Word of God, Genesis 4 verse 7, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So we know sin wants to control you, but you must have self-control, you mustn't sin. That's quite clear. So actually, the Genesis 3 verse 16 text is not a verse that supports male headship in marriage. It doesn't speak much into that at all. It's actually about conflict and control. It says, your desire will be for your husband, like sin desired to have Cain, to have control over him, but he will rule over you, like Cain was supposed to subdue sin. So sin came to tempt Cain, Cain was supposed to put it down as if it was his enemy. These are not nice dynamics for a marriage. I mean, seriously, this is not about male headship and female submission. That's not what this text is about. This text is about who is trying to take control and who is fighting. And basically, Cain and Sin were not friends. 
Cain and sin, we're not friends. So this is not about cooperation. It's a battle for control and a rivalry. This is why the ESV translated this as your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It is, you will want to control your husband and he will also seek to control you. Your desire will be contrary and he will rule over you. You will want to control him and he will do the opposite. He will control you. And in fact, it's not an endorsement of male headship. It's not saying he should control you. It's not in a good way. That would be like parents should control their children. That's a good thing. Okay? Parents controlling their children, children who are obey, obey their parents, all that is in the positive light. So, but this isn't phrased like that. In Genesis 3 verse 16, it's not saying the husband should control you. It's saying he will rule over you, meaning in a contrary nature to you trying to rule over him. It's talking about a struggle, a rivalry, a conflict within the marriage union that never existed before the fall. So now if you want to understand why is marriage so hard and why do 50% of marriages end in divorce, it's because of sin. When sin came into the world, it made us fight to want to control others and be in control ourselves. And that's the fight that goes on within a marriage until you realize you shouldn't be fighting that fight. So this, is this the fault of marriage? No, it's the weakness and brokenness of the flesh. In other words, just like the law is pure, you've got a good and pure and holy law given to Israel and then the, the law actually basically condemns the people to death because they failed to uphold the law. And Paul says, what then is the law bad? And he says, by no means, it is weakened by the sinful nature in the human being. So the law is good, but we, because of our sinful nature, our flesh, our own weakness and corruption, we turn this thing that's supposed to be good into something bad. And this is what happens to marriage. Marriage is a good institution, but weak people weakened by their own selfishness and corruption break it. It's not how it's meant to be. We are not meant to try to control others who are our equals in a sense. And to elaborate on that, all will make more sense by the time I end. See, in marriage, husbands are not told to control their wives, nor are wives told to control their husbands. In the Bible, the only time you are told to control anything is when you are told to grow in self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. Be self-controlled. And I think in some translations, maybe in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elders, that the you can't be qualified to lead if you don't have control over your household. Meaning, if your children are out of control, it disqualifies you from being a, an elder in the church. Now that is, that's a good kind of control, meaning that the children are in line, obeying their parents, not rebels, not going around town burning stuff, breaking stuff, stealing stuff. You know, so the kids are not delinquent. Kids should be under control, but they're not even the parents aren't even told explicitly, control your children. The children are told, obey your parents. 
you see where the, the, the emphasis is always put on you control yourself. You as a wife submit to your husband. He doesn't control you. He never rules over you that way. Because you're actually equal. So if you had to ask me, what's the other pattern for marriage? It's egalitarian. Christians are divided sometimes into two views on marriage, complementarian and egalitarian. The egalitarian view says we're equals and everything about us is equal, which I agree with in terms of your value, but it's not biblical in terms of your role. You are male and you are female. There is a difference. If you don't know that, anyway. So actually, who's right and who's wrong? Egalitarian, complementarian, actually both are right. There's different roles in marriage and there's egalitarianism and this fear of being controlled is really at the root of the debate. See, in the Bible we're told to exercise self-control. We're never told to control others. For example, hypnotism. Why do Christians view hypnotism as something evil? Because you're taking away somebody's control and putting it in the hands of somebody else. And that is called witchcraft. So don't go to a hypnotist and give up control of yourself. There's other things that take control of you too. And it's just as destructive as witchcraft. Alcohol. Get drunk. You're not in control of yourself. You have surrendered control to I don't know what. Your sin nature now maybe or just your own stupidity. But when you're drunk, you're going to end up hurting someone or getting hurt yourself. It's just like that. So you've surrendered control. You're on the brink of engaging in some kind of a demonic dynamics. Because whenever you're in that position of not being in control or trying to control somebody else, that's where the witchcraft is coming in. So we're, when we seek to control that which is not ours to control, we are outside of the authority God has given us. Right. You hear that? So if I seek to control my wife in a way that God has not given me, He hasn't told me to control her, then I'm actually outside of the authority of God. Illegitimate control is practically demonic. I keep using this term because I want you to take it seriously. Illegitimate control is really unhealthy. So ways in which we try to control those we love. Because this is what you start out as spiritually, emotionally, you're an infant. You're a baby. Some guys never grow up. I've met a 60-year-old once years and years and years ago who had a full-on tantrum in front of me. It's like this dude chucked stuff across the room, smashed his laptop. You know, maybe he wasn't 60 yet then, but now he's kind of that age. And I looked at this guy and I thought, dude, you're a grown-up, but you know what you look like? You look like a child. You're having a tantrum. And it's not, it's not something that's just okay. You know, your child's going to have a tantrum, you know, whatever, in the supermarket, wherever, all parents go through this. We all have those moments. And it's, it's not just there, there, poor Johnny or Jeannie or whatever her name is. It's, it's not just a oh, sweet little kid, sorry for them. No, it's, it's not acceptable behavior. But what is it? Why is it that it's happening? Do you know what it is? The child wants to control the parent. Is that legitimate? Is that God 
ordained and desired. This guy said, yes, children should rule. That is in scripture that when the young rule, the nation is cursed. Not talking about Madagascar, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Because we actually don't have young rulers anymore. Time has passed. That was long ago. But the idea that the child can have their way by playing up and acting out is actually borderline demonic because it's a manipulative, ugly, evil tactic. So what is this? Manipulation and intimidation are two sides of the same coin. Other control, control over the other party is the goal. And so those two dynamics, manipulation and intimidation, occur in the playground, at school, the bully rises up, he wants to be in control, how does he do it? He's a bully. Bullying is wicked because it's an attempt to control others where there's no authority to do so. And it really is ugly. And the, and the girl who wants to control things, well she will dress a certain way and hang out with the right friends and start being all seductive towards the guy that she's interested in because she wants to control him. It's wicked. All of this kind of stuff. So we could list it. Sulking. Vindictive behavior. You know what? Vindictive behavior. Kids display it like if, if I can't have it, no one can. See two kids fighting over a toy and when the one kid wants the toy, the other kid wants that toy and then if the parent's going to say you have to share it, that's not good enough. And then they actually smash the toy in their rage that if I'm going to lose this thing, you are too. If I can't have it, you can't have it either. Or I'll get you for that, remembering, biding your time, looking for a moment to take revenge, remembering what somebody said so that when the right moment comes and you can hurt them, you say back something. Flattery, seducing, bullying, sulking, threats and treats. Threats and treats, don't upset me or I'll sulk or then I'm happy with you so we'll sleep together tonight, husband and wife. You know, I'll give you a treat. My body is a treat when I'm happy with you, but when I'm not happy with you, you don't get the treat. That's manipulative, borderline demonic behavior. That's how marriages get damaged when people live in these dynamics which are childish. They're simply how children behave. So there's this maturing, a maturing process that we have to kind of understand. In Ephesians 6 verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So the writer to the Ephesians, Paul, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Earlier than this, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. It's also fitting. It's also right. He doesn't say wives obey your husbands, but in other passages, Scripture does almost speak that strongly. And that's not the issue for me. Like, what do I mean? It's not the issue for me. I'm not trying to tell wives their, their place. You have to see something by revelation about how the relationship dynamics work, and then you will actually live your place joyfully. Whatever your place is, whether it's the serving of leading, or whether it's the serving of submitting, or whether it doesn't, doesn't really matter. What do parents do? 
for children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So what do parents do? Rewards and punishment. It works on children for a season, but it's not appropriate for adults. And there's a reason for this. You see, rewards and punishment coerces what is not freely given. So, I threaten to punish my child, so they do what I tell them to do out of fear of punishment, not out of actual desire or ownership of what I'm saying. I've told the story before, like the, the little child that should be sitting down, I better look this way now. The little child that should be sitting down and he's standing up and the parent says sit down or the teacher says sit down and the child looks defiantly and says I won't. And the, 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 the parent or the teacher says you must sit down or you will get a hiding, spanking, whatever, you know, you're going to be in trouble, you'll get a timeout. Let's put it in the modern way. It sounds so impotent. You'll get a timeout. I'll take away your iPad. Sit down, we shouted the kid. Eventually we raise our voice louder than any child can scream and the child sits down and inside the child looks with his eyes saying, I'm still standing. <laughs> so this is the problem with trying to, trying to coerce obedience. In fact, it achieves external compliance but still can't address internal rebellion. And God dealt with Israel this way. He said to them, you'll be blessed if you obey, you'll be punished if you disobey. Interesting, he was showing something in Israel as the, the first covenant God made with people. He showed them a childish view and said, you should do what I tell you because what I tell you is going to do you good. Like a child, I will make you. And so Israel obeys, but they don't obey from the heart. They perform sacrifices, but they look for every shortcut. And they don't love God and obey Him from the desire to do so. They're just afraid of punishment. And so Israel is a picture, is actually very immature. And God teaches them obedience and also they, they recognize their own rebellion, their own disobedience. They recognize the inner fleshly man who says, no, I won't. I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. And Saul typifies that as the king of Israel. And then God says, the problem is I'm, you need a new heart. So I'll fix that problem. The gospel promises I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to write my law inside of you on your heart and you're going to want to do the things that please me. That's the promise of the gospel, of the, of the new covenant. It's that God would give us a new heart and a new spirit and write His law on the inside. We would actually want to do what's right. And so, when we come to this idea coming to fruition in the New Testament, we get this text in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. We're in the middle of the gifts of the spirit and the ministry and the church and people behaving in a childish way where they're showing off their gifts and competing without love and Paul starts to speak about the more excellent way which is love he says when I was a child I spoke like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child when I became a man I gave up childish ways I gave up childish ways and in that context of understanding 
how love puts the other person first, Paul is writing as if you're going from immaturity to maturity when you get it. You were living under the law, it was your custodian, you were like a child, you were being told what to do, you didn't want to do it, you had no ownership of these ideas. That was all the, the era of childishness, but that era is past. The new covenant has come. God's love has been revealed in Christ. Everything changes. And so when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And Jesus said in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. God doesn't coerce us. He doesn't come and force us and override our control. He says, I show you my love. How will you respond to my love? I give you my love. You don't deserve it and you haven't earned it. How will you live in my love? I love you even though you rebelled against me. What's your response going to be? Jesus says, love given freely doesn't take away your freedom and coerce you. So love doesn't mean control, but it leads to obedience. That's given freely. So if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's very different meaning from, if you love me, you will do what I tell you. It's not, he's not that way. He's saying this is simply what happens, that those who love me obey me. He's not coercing them. It's a, it's a, it's a grown-up view. And if I raise my children correctly, I control them less and less the older they get, and more and more freely they do what I would want them to do in life. In other words, my children are free. They can go out and get drunk, and they don't. Why would they follow the value of their dad when their dad is not coercing them? Or the result is going to be they're doing the things that I would expect them to do. Am I going to have a tantrum if they don't? Are they going to get it perfectly right? No, none of that. I'm not, I'm not in control. I might, be, I might be able to, you know, shout and scream, but I still can't change what they're going to do once they leave home. It's not the way to do it. So why do we play up and act out and do all these things? Why do we shout or sulk or try to manipulate or try to dominate? Why do you bully? With all of these dynamics, you have to leave them behind. I don't know how you've lived your marriage up until now, but you have to leave those things behind because those are childish ways and they're manipulative, they're leading towards witchcraft. We could say generally it's because we're sinners, but we could also say we play up and we do these things because we're broken by sin. The psychologists have actually worked out that most people act up out of fear of rejection. In other words, people sabotage their own relationship with the person closest to them by causing trouble on purpose out of fear that they would lose that person. So a child that plays up, causes lots of trouble, is possibly wanting to make sure that by creating a scene in a crisis, they can get their parents' attention and the parent fights with them and then reaffirms their love for them and that's what they were hoping for. 
In other words, some of the trauma we cause other people is because we actually want to force them to reaffirm their commitment to us. So you might push someone away because you want them to come after you. That's what the psychologists say. You're afraid of rejection, so you actually sabotage your own relationship to create a crisis so that that person is forced to come rushing into that crisis to try and fix it. Now that's a kind of a toxic dynamic. That's a tragedy because at the root of it, there's this fear of rejection, which is driving misbehavior. That's what it really is. It's driving misbehavior. Now, interestingly, the gospel comes and cures that problem. Because when the gospel comes, it says, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I accept you as you are in your sins and with your faults. I'm adopting you into my family. I died for you while you were still my enemy. I will never kick you out. And so you can stop acting up. You don't have to test God's love. You don't have to force Him to reaffirm it. He said it once and for all. It's done. You belong to me. It says, I'm yours. You are mine. This is forever. The end of the book of Romans makes that clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So God comes and He says that, this is it. You're in my arms forever. You don't have to act out anymore. You don't have to prove your love to me or make me make a fight so I prove my love to you. Just, it's okay. In the same way, the marriage covenant is built on the premise that it would offer the safety needed not to fear rejection. This is why divorce should never have existed. It, sh it does, and it's necessary in some relationships, but it should never have existed. Because in the true marriage covenant, it simply gives you this framework that says, I am yours and you are mine, and it will never be any other way. And so there's never this fear that you could be rejected. There's never this situation where you feel threatened, so you have to compete as if your spouse is your enemy and stay in control in case you get hurt. Now I'll give you one illustration before I wrap this up. But sometimes we don't understand the importance of the marriage covenant in providing that security that you can actually be who you are and not be rejected. But that kind of security is so fundamentally necessary. If I consider, for example, speaking to my fiance before we were married and saying, would you have children? And she said, no, I don't want to have children. Why would Sue say she doesn't want to have children? Well, I don't know, but when I prayed about that and asked God, do I have to convince her she's got to have children? Are we gonna to have to fight about this? Are we gonna have a disagreement? Or how are we gonna reconcile this issue? Because I know one day I want to have children. Should I even marry her if she doesn't want to have children? Then we got married, I didn't have that argument, never fought with her to change her mind. And about a year later, she was like, it would be cool to have children. So what changed? All that's necessary in order to give a woman the confidence to bring babies into the world is the security that there is a family in which to raise them. Having got married and being satisfied with the quality, be it very average quality of our marriage a year in, she was like, this is a safe place for me to bring children into the world. Now I'd like to have children. I didn't want to have children, now I do. But can you see that this is something that marriage does. It creates a place 
where you're supposed to feel safe. Many cases it doesn't work like that. Why doesn't it work like that? Because we've simply lived in a kind of a childish rivalry. I can't trust you. You're going to bully me. I'm going to have to manipulate you. It's all, I don't know how to tell you, a thousand levels lower than what God intends. So what we need to understand is that the marriage covenant is built on the premise that it gives you the safety not to fear rejection. And the gospel heals our fears. It shows us that God accepts us and we wouldn't be rejected. And we need both of those ideas. We need a view of marriage that is high and permanent. We need the gospel to come and give us that sense of acceptance. And when we put those two together, then we have a Christian husband and a Christian wife, both constrained and enabled by God. Both constrained and enabled by God. In other words, both held to that commitment, but also empowered to uphold that commitment. So what happens then is, instead of fighting for control and making it a debate about who's in control, we go back to, we're actually one flesh. I'm not rivaling her, she's not rivaling me, we're not in competition against one another, she's not a threat to me and I shouldn't be a threat to her. And so, a wife trusting God and thus submitting to her husband as unto Christ, a husband trusting God and thus submitting to Christ. Both of us are submitters in our marriage. And her submission is to God, but also to me. My submission is to God, and it's for her. That's how it works. And you might say, how, how can it be that the husband then, you know, is, is he carries this headship, she submits to him, but she also submits to God, who's truly her master? Who's truly her master? Me or God? Well, God is the ultimate master. I can't lead her. I mean, she mustn't follow me into sin. But for the most part, under God, I am her head. I am the head of this marriage. And it works just the same as what we expected of our firstborn son. Sorry, I've let the cat out the bag. Now you know which one it was. Who, when he was in, when he was in pre-primary school, and his teacher told him to do something, he looked at her and he said, I don't have to do this. You're not the boss of me. And she looked at him and like, and he said, she needs an explanation. So he gave her an explanation. He said, God is the boss of me. <laughs> so what is true? Who's the boss of the kid in pre-primary? Is it the teacher or is it God? She, as a teacher, could have said, if God is the boss of you, then you'll do what I tell you. That's simple. See, if God is the boss of Sue, then she will submit to me as her husband. I don't have to fight that fight. I don't have to make her submit. I don't have to do anything to try and control her. It's, it doesn't work like that. There is no witchcraft in my marriage. I don't bully her, intimidate her, threaten her, manipulate her, seduce her, flatter her. Nothing to get her to do what I want. It's very simple. If God is the boss of her, all the problems are taken care of. 
So I'll never, as a husband, feel I'm in a battle to control my wife. And she doesn't have to feel like she's in a battle to control me if God is the boss of me. And He is. And so this is why I said to you at the beginning of this message, who is going to be in control in your marriage? If you want marriage to work, God must be in control. God must be in control in the wife's life. God must be in control in the man's life, the husband's life. And then you must work together, not as rivals, but as partners. So I'm not going to exercise any of the childish ways and try to manipulate to get what I want or intimidate. Sorry, I should be the guy. I'm not going to try to bully. Gee, some wives bully their husbands. I've heard of that too, so it happens. All I'm saying is if you understand these things truly, then you should move away from the childish ways, the ways that sin puts into our lives and see far, far beyond that actually the idea of we are one, we're on the same team, we're equals, and yet there is a head, there is a helper, those things true, but not through some kind of a demonic control or intimidation or witchcraft dynamics. None of that in our marriages. God is in control. We would call it voluntary submission. Voluntary submission, I would say it's love-driven obedience. And that's what we all as Christians should give to Jesus. Love-driven, love-motivated obedience. The band can come up. Won't you stand? I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we want to ask that you would help us to recognize when we're behaving like children, where we try to manipulate or we try to trick people into doing what we want, where we try to intimidate or bully people into doing what we want, where we try to control others, Lord. Help us to learn not to try to control where we're not supposed to. Help us to understand where your authority is upon us and where it should be released. And God, I pray for parents as well who are raising children to know at what point they should relinquish control and expect those children to follow you in their own faith and obedience. So I pray, God, that you would help us as a people to know, Lord, your ways to walk in your ways and to do these things for your glory in Jesus' name.